Well, why don't you take your devices or your Bible and turn with me to First uh, Peter chapter 5. Let me make a comment right quick. I made a comment about my Baylor Bears last week. And let me just, let me just say this right quick. You, you know what it was at halftime? 31 to 10. They're winning at halftime. Our guys had to go prepare for church <laughs> the next day. So those were other guys in the second half. That's just the way it is at a Christian school. And so you just get used to that. They also had a curfew. And so that's just the way it is. We're going to wrap up First Peter today. We've been in First Peter for several months now. You'd think a five-chapter letter would be done a lot faster, but uh, there's just so much meat to chew on. But let me, let me say this before we read the Scripture today and go on to today's message. Here's the big idea about all of First Peter. We have called this life on mission, and here's the deal. You and only you can be a missionary in your specific realm of life. God saved you for a purpose. Yes, eternal life. Yes, heaven someday. Yes, but he saved you to use you right in your place of life. And you've got to live life on mission. What I've discovered is, is many Christians today are bored with the Christian faith. They're bored. And here's why they're bored, especially in America, they're bored. I tell you why they're bored is we have turned Christianity into a spectator sport. You, you go to church instead of being the church. And what happens is, is that if you're entertained well enough here, because I, I talk to many people and they've, they've been sporadic at church or whatever. So you talk to them. They feel guilty, and this is what they say. I know I need to come back to church. I, need to, I, need, I know I need to be back in church. You, listen, the, the Bible does say, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And, and that is important. But you've got to understand, this is to equip you to go into your mission field, your school, your neighborhood, your workplace. Wherever you're at, God wants to use you as a missionary right there. I can't be there. Our pastors can't be there. Our elders can't be there. You are there. God's Spirit is there. And He wants to use you right in that very place. That's the big idea of the, of the whole letter that I believe Peter is getting across to these people. Yes, there's going to be suffering. Yes, there's going to be hard times. Yes, these, these, these things are going to be there. But God is with you. He wants to use you right where you're at. That's the big idea that we're trying to get across to you. And you will spend the rest of your life. I can tell you this. You're bored with your faith? Get out there and life on mission. I guarantee you, no soldier is bored when bullets are coming at him. Maybe the enemy isn't shooting bullets your way because he doesn't need to. I, I see that a lot of times in, in some people when they're faith. They've just, oh, it's just, I go to church. I check in. I do the religious stuff. Enemy doesn't care about that. You can come to church forever and the enemy doesn't care about that. But if, I tell you what, you start getting life on mission and it'll get exciting. You'll start seeing God move like you've never known before. So that's the big idea. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to go through verse 5 through the end of the, end of the book, end of the chapter. So let me read. And, uh, and let's see what God has for us today. It says, In the same way, 
In the same way, this is referring back to what we talked about last week, about these elders, these spiritual leaders, how they need to submit to God. And uh, and this is he's speaking to the younger men, younger people here uh, in this. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And then there's a little addendum here and and salutations from from Peter. He says, with the help of Silas, whom I, I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We come to the end, and I think it's a great challenge today. In 1968, there was a man by the name of John Stephen Akwari. In 1968, the Olympics were in Mexico City that year, and Akwari was a marathon runner from Tanzania. He was not supposed to be really in the the forefront of winning a medal, but he was representing his country, Tanzania, there in the marathon. The marathon is always how the Olympics end, and so the guns went off early in the morning, and these runners take off. And in the midst of this run... Akwari falls, he stumbles, and he falls hard. In fact, eventually it would be noted that he dislocated a knee even in his running, and he fell on his shoulder, and he was in great pain. The, the attendants took him aside, and they tried to doctor him up the best they could, and they said, you need to exit, you need to not be in the race anymore. And he, they could not, could not uh, dissuade him, so he went on in the running. Eventually, the forerunners came into the stadium, and you do a lap before you finish the race. About an hour after the, all the front runners had been through, most of the stands had kind of emptied. I want you to see a picture of Akwari. He came in, and you can tell the stands are about empty because he came in so much later than the forerunners. But when he came in, the people began to clap because they saw the discomfort he was in in the race. He made the final lap and he crossed the finish line and his, to the hugs of his teammates. And they interviewed Akwari afterwards and they said, why would you finish this race? Why, what kept you going? They told you you need to stop. You're in great pain. Why did you, you finish? And Akwari said this. He said, I don't think you understand. My country did not send me to Mexico just to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. 
Akwari's story is a picture of life for you and me as believers. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be times you want to quit. There's going to be times that are very difficult relationally, physically, materialistically. You're going to struggle in some time during your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. But you've got to remember, it's not a matter of just starting the race. We want to finish strong. And so today, I want us to look at this final, final push that Peter has for the people. And there's going to be three things we're going to talk about. Number one is to be humble. Number two is to be watchful. And number three, it's to be hopeful. Let's look, first of all, at what it means to be humble. In verses 5 through 7, Peter uses some words like submit and humility. And these are words that are not favorite words of our culture. I tell you why. It's because those words mean that you surrender your rights. And Jesus was the incredible example of surrendering his rights. You see, we always fight for our rights. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this, right? That's what our culture seems to be built on. And then along comes radical Jesus, who has all authority, but he surrenders all of his rights. And then he asks that of his followers, that you need to submit one to another. You need to clothe yourself in humility. That, that phrase, clothe yourself, is actually a picture of a servant who would take his robe maybe and tuck it in so he can, can work better. Or Jesus demonstrated it. You remember in John chapter 13, Jesus took off his outer garment, he wrapped a towel around himself, and he washed his disciples' feet. That's what that means. Clothe yourself. Prepare yourself. All of life. If you're going to do life on mission... You need to do it in subjection to one another and to love and to surrender your rights. But we're thinking, oh, man, but I deserve this. I deserve this. Look at me. I deserve this. I'm telling you, if anybody deserved anything, it was Jesus. And let me tell you, the cross was not a pretty picture, but yet he surrendered his rights right there. Peter is saying we need to be humble. There is a cross before there is a crown. There is suffering before there is the successes in following Jesus. And then the Scripture says that that He will lift you up in due time. In other words, He will be the one to elevate you. You don't have to elevate yourself. God Himself will elevate you. He will be the one to lift you up. Leonard Bernstein, the great composer, was asked one time, As you look at an orchestra, and you're conducting that orchestra, what is the hardest uh, instrument to play in the orchestra? And Leonard Bernstein said, the hardest instrument to play in any orchestra is second violin. Because everybody wants to be first. Everybody wants to be the first violin. But if there's not the second violin, there's no harmony. Man, that's a rule in life. Are we willing to subject ourselves one to another? And I'm not saying don't do your best. Don't strive for excellence. We as Christians ought to be pursuing excellence in everything we do. But yet we are willing to subject ourselves and clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. Because pride 
Pride is a, a killer. Notice what he says too here. He says, cast your anxieties. Man, tell me if we don't live in an anxious day. Many of you were here last Sunday evening when the young lady came and she spoke on, on anxiety and depression among children and students. And uh, man, when she started talking, I'm thinking, I can just imagine where they're seeing this anxiety, a whole culture of anxiety that starts with us as adults. Because we just walk in these anxious thoughts all the time. And here comes Peter. And he is saying, listen, cast, once and for all, cast your anxieties upon him. The word anxiety literally is a picture of being pulled apart. And that's what anxiety is. You're getting pulled apart. So Peter says, listen, if you're going to walk in humility, you're going to have to cast once and for all, all of your anxieties. And then this is what he says. Because He cares for you. Listen, I don't know what you're going through today. I know what a lot of you are going through today. But you got to know, He cares for you. Whatever you're going through, He cares. Literally, the, the verbiage means you are of utmost concern to Him. He is that concerned for you. The way I look at it, it's three words. He's got this. Whatever you're going through, you can know He's got this. But Mark, it hurts. He's got this. But I don't know about my kids. He's got this. He's got it. Cast your anxious thoughts on Him. But Mark, that's hard. You bet it's hard. Why is it hard? Because of pride? We think we can do better with it? And that's where we have these anxious thoughts. Because it's... It, it, pride, pride literally is the opposite of, of, of trust because what we do is we hold on to anxious thoughts. We're really thinking we can do it better and that it depends upon us. So be humble. The second one is this, be watchful. Notice in verse 8, he picks up another thought here. He says, be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be alert and sober mind. I think, I, I think that Peter has gone back to the Garden of Gethsemane in his thoughts. So let me kind of share with you what took place there. Jesus, the night he was going to be, before he was going to be crucified, he went to a garden to pray. He took Peter, this same Peter, James and John, a little bit deeper into the garden, and this is what Jesus instructs them. Be alert and pray. Stay awake and pray. And, of course, they drifted off to sleep. And he had to chastise them. Wake up. Could you not wait with me one hour? And I think that's going through Peter's mind. And he's thinking, you know, I fell asleep. I should have stayed awake. And so he challenges these people. Be alert. Be sober. And here's the deal. The reason for this is, is that spiritual warfare, which we believe very much in, and I'll talk a little bit more about it here, is that it? Don't you wish the devil had a pitchfork and a little red tail and all that kind of stuff? It'd be easy to deal with because you would see it. But he disguises himself as an angel of light, and most of the battle is right here in our minds. And so he instructs the people: be alert, be sober, 
Keep your eyes wide open. Be awake. And here's what I think is one of the most important words in that whole verse 8. It's this. Your. Your enemy. Your enemy. Once again, I think Peter is reflecting back to a passage in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, where Jesus says this. Imagine this conversation. Jesus having this conversation with you. Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. Man, can you imagine? The king of kings is sitting right there in front of you, knowing that Satan exists, and he says, Satan has asked for you, Peter. I'm telling you what, that would freak me out right there. And then Jesus says this, but rest assured, I'm praying for you. In other words, he didn't, he didn't take that away because eventually Peter's going to be hit extremely hard. But Jesus was praying for him. And that's good to know that Jesus is praying for us in the midst of spiritual warfare that we get in. And so this is what he says, your enemy, your enemy, the devil, the devil is, the, the term devil literally means accuser or slanderer. It's actually a reference to what somebody in court would bring up against you. See, that's why the battle is so much in the mind. We see where Satan is the father of lies. He is the slander. He's the accuser. He's coming against you all the time. He, these are the attacks that are there. And the devil is trying to do three things. Ready? He's trying to mar the image of Jesus anywhere he can. So he wants to keep you from Christ. So if he can keep you from Christ, that's what he wants to do. However, if you come to Christ, number two, he wants to make you indifferent towards following Christ. Man, a Christian that's indifferent gives a vague picture to the world so that so they don't see Jesus. So he wants to keep you in an indifferent state, keep you apathetic, keep you, oh, I'm just going to go to church every now and then. I, it's just going to be a part of my life because I don't want to go to hell someday, but yet your life is ineffective. Or thirdly, he wants you just to fall. He wants to take you down. He, he, he feels like if he can take a believer that's constantly walking in doubt and uh, the world becomes so attractive that just leads them astray, what that has done is it's marred the whole name of Jesus. And we're seeing this repeated weekly. Not just about, uh, I mean, not just everybody that's a Christian, but we're seeing it even in the media weekly. We're seeing it in marriages. We're seeing the, just the, the name of Jesus is getting drugged through the mud. And this is what the devil wants to do. He's the accuser. He's the slanderer. So how do we win? Here's four, four quick things out of this passage in how we win against the devil. Number one is we gotta rest in God. We gotta to submit to God. God, this is your battle. I'm gonna rest in you. When Satan comes knocking at the door to tempt me or knocking at the door to take me down, Jesus, you answer the door. I'm gonna rest in you. I'm gonna rest. James in his letter even said, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee. But many people want to do this. The name of Jesus and all this kind of stuff. But they're not submitting to God. And so we need to rest in God, first of all. Number two, we need to recognize the devil. We need to recognize when he's coming against us. 
that temptation, the, the lies, the accusation, the unworthiness that he's, he's bombarding us with all the time. And we recognize that. And I'm going to use a term here that we got to be, I, I, I'll, I'll define what I'm saying, but we need to respect what he is doing against us. Not respect and elevate and say, man, that is great. But we need to respect. I know this. I know that except for the grace of God, I will fall. Because the enemy has learned and studied mankind for thousands of years. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's not everywhere. But yet I know, I know I'd be taken down. I respect that, that that can take me down. Just like I respect someone who knows all about electricity and I don't. That I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I respect what they know. But here's Satan who, who wants to come against me and I want to recognize that so I can deal with it. So number one is we rest in God. Number two, we recognize the devil. And then three was this, we resist the devil. Notice what Peter says in verse uh, number nine. He says, resist him standing firm. Stand on your faith. Don't be barking out a lot of commands. You stand firm, knowing that God has this. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. We stand firm. So we resist the devil. And then fourthly is this. We rally with others. And somebody may say, Mark, where do you see that in the passage about others? Peter is writing this in the plural form. In other words, instead of you, it's you all. Y'all. Peter was a Texan. Y'all. He's talking about a group here. Rally together. You know, you know, you've seen the National Geographic. Here come the wildebeest. And they're making their way across the tundra. And we're watching, we're watching this and some cameraman shooting. And then all of a sudden he, he centers in on a sick one or something that's got away from the herd. And you're thinking, oh man, your history, your lunch. And here comes the lions. And they pick that isolated one off. See, that's what happens. Instead of when times get tough, instead of rallying, oftentimes we isolate and the enemy just has us. So we rest in God. We recognize the devil. We resist him. And we rally with others. But this is the way I'm afraid some of us are. There was a man who was telling his life story, and he said that when he was a little boy, every day when he went to school, there was a bully who would take his lunch money. Every day this bully would take his lunch money. And so he decided this, I'm going to learn karate, and I'm going to take that bully down. So he went to the karate studio, and they let him take a few classes, and then they said, okay, you're going to have to start paying for the karate lessons. And the guy said... What I decided to do at that point is I would rather pay the bully than to pay for karate lessons. I'm afraid that's describing some Christians today. We've succumbed to the enemy because walking with Jesus takes discipline. It takes a steadfast spirit. It takes wanting to get into his word. It's willing to learn what we need to learn. I, I look at it this. Who knows how to play the piano the best? The one who has studied and trained, yes, not me. You put me at a 
piano, it's terrible. But somebody that has trained themselves can play the piano and make beautiful music. It's the Christ follower who's willing to get disciplined. Yes, it's a free gift of grace that comes from Jesus at the cross. Salvation is a free gift. But I'm telling you, there's a reason that we need to grow and become disciplined in our faith. Are we paying the bully? Are we paying the price to become Christ-like? So be watchful. Last one is this. Be hopeful. Be hopeful. Peter ends on a real positive note. Notice in verse 10, he says, And the, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He called you. I love that. You that are followers of Jesus in this room, did you know you did not take the initial step? God so loved you. He wooed you. He drew you to Him. It wasn't something that you did. Oh, I just need God, so I'm going to go pursue it. No, no, no. He's been pursuing you all along. For you that aren't, for you that aren't Christ followers in this room, you got to know God so loves you and He's drawn you through His love. He's called you. He has a plan for you. But He's waiting for you to respond. He's a gentleman in that, that He, he calls you, but he, he, He's up to you to respond. He calls you. And then, and then this is what comes in this. Suffering is temporary. Suffering is temporary. You got to hear that. First, in our, uh, first service, uh, two guys, Jack and David, they didn't know each other here today. I introduced them because they both walked through very similar situations this year. Both of them's wife passed away. Jack had been married 63 years. David had been married 57 years. That was suffering. But I'm telling you, that's a temporary suffering. There will be a reuniting someday. During Bible fellowship time today, I left and went up to the hospital to see a couple of our people who are in the hospital. They're suffering. But I know it's temporary. Even if they don't get well and they go to see Jesus, it's temporary. Some of you are going through emotional suffering right now. I'm telling you it's temporary. It's temporary suffering. And that's what Peter is getting across here, is that it's, it's only for a little while. But one last thing I want to bring out of this, be hopeful. Notice what he says, restore you. I love that. He says, will himself restore you. The, the picture behind restore you here in the language is a picture of a net that is used for fishing that has been mended and made right. In other words, you know, if you've got a net and you're out fishing and it's got holes all in it, then that means the fish are getting out of there, right? So what happens is you mend that net and now it's useful to make a catch. That's what the picture is here. He will mend you. We're all broken. Let's confess it. We're all broken. I just praise God for a God who loves me so much He's willing to mend me and put me back together. So that we can be used for a purpose of catching men. He restores you. So be humble. 
I think that's the hardest one. Be watchful. Be hopeful. This is what Peter's getting across. There was, I was, I did some reading on roaring lions this week. I don't know, you know, your brain just goes a thousand different directions. Did you know a, a lion's roar can be heard from five miles? Now, if you're in a canyon or something, probably farther, but five miles. You don't know where he's at, but you're hearing him. That creates anxiety, crash your anxiety upon him, right? But there's a story of a father and, and a son, and they went to the zoo. And this particular day, they went to the zoo. The lion was a little agitated, so he's roaring. The little boy draws up close to his dad because he was fearful of the lion. And the dad spoke to his little boy and said, because the dad was so calm. And his dad said this. He said, son, you see the lion, I see the cage. Because you see, I know who wins. I know that Satan is under the authority of Jesus Christ right now. I know that he's not all-knowing. I know he is a defeated enemy. And i tell you how I know that. In Revelation chapter 5, let me read this to you. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals? And open the scroll. This scroll is all about the life and, and about the, the book of life and about what's about to take place. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Rejoice! Don't weep! Because you see, there is one. There is a lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David, and I know his name is Jesus Christ, and one day we will stand before him. And that roaring lion, from what I read in Scripture, has never seen hell. But one day, eternally, he will be there. But the lion of the tribe of Judah reigns forever. And that's our King of Kings.